Section 58 of L'Assommoir This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Giessen L'Assommoir by Emile Zola Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli Fifth part of chapter 12 so now she had accosted Goldenbeard. But what had she done on earth to be tortured like this by Providence? It was the crowning blow, to stumble against Gouget, and be seen by her blacksmith friend, pale and begging like a common street-walker. And it happened just under a gas-lamp. She could see her deformed shadow swaying on the snow like a real caricature. You would have said she was drunk. Mon Dieu, not to have a crust of bread or a drop of wine in her body and to be taken for a drunken woman. It was her own fault. Why did she booze? Bouget no doubt thought she had been drinking and that she was up to some nasty pranks. He looked at her whilst the snow scattered daisies over his beautiful yellow beard. Then, as she lowered her head and stepped back, he detained her. "'Come,' said he. And he walked on first. She followed him. They both crossed the silent district, gliding noiselessly along the walls. Poor Madame Gouget had died of rheumatism in the month of October. Gouget still resided in the little house in the Rue Neuve, living gloomily alone. On this occasion he was belated because he had sat up nursing a wounded comrade. When he had opened the door and lighted a lamp, he turned toward Gervaise, who had remained humbly on the threshold. Then, in a low voice, as if he were afraid his mother could still hear him, he exclaimed, Come in! The first room, Madame Gouget's, was piously preserved in the state she had left it. On a chair near the window lay the tambour by the side of the large armchair, which seemed to be waiting for the old lace-worker. The bed was made, and she could have stretched herself beneath the sheets if she had left the cemetery to come and spend the evening with her child. There was something solemn, a perfume of honesty and goodness about the room. "'Come in,' repeated the blacksmith in a louder tone. She went in, half-frightened, like a disreputable woman gliding into a respectable place. He was quite pale, and trembled at the thought of ushering a woman like this into his dead mother's home. They crossed the room on tiptoe, as if they were ashamed to be heard. Then, when he had pushed Gervaise into his own room, he closed the door. Here he was at home. It was the narrow closet she was acquainted with. A schoolgirl's room with a little iron bedstead hung with white curtains. On the walls, the engravings cut out of illustrated newspapers had gathered and spread, and they now reached to the ceiling. The room looked so pure that Gervaise did not dare to advance, but retreated as far as she could from the lamp. Then, without a word, in a transport as it were, he tried to seize hold of her and press her in his arms. But she felt faint and murmured, Oh, mon Dieu, oh, mon Dieu. The fire in the stove, having been covered with coke dust, was still alight, and the remains of a stew which Gouget had put to warm, thinking he should return to dinner, was smoking in front of the cinders. 
Gervaise, who felt her numbness leave her in the warmth of this room, would have gone down on all fours to eat it out of the saucepan. Her hunger was stronger than her will. Her stomach seemed rent in two, and she stooped down with a sigh. Gouget had realized the truth. He placed the stew on the table, cut some bread, and poured her out a glass of wine. "'Thank you, thank you,' said she. "'Oh, how kind you are, thank you.' She stammered. She could hardly articulate. When she caught hold of her fork, she began to tremble so acutely that she let it fall again. The hunger that possessed her made her wag her head as if senile. She carried the food to her mouth with her fingers. As she stuffed the first potato into her mouth, she burst out sobbing. Big tears coursed down her cheeks and fell onto her bread. She still ate, gluttonously devouring this bread thus moistened by her tears, and breathing very hard all the while. Gouget compelled her to drink to prevent her from stifling, and her glass chinked, as it were, against her teeth. "'Will you have some more bread?' he asked in an undertone. She cried. She said, "'No.' She said, "'Yes.' She didn't know. Ah, how nice and yet how painful it is to eat when one is starving. And standing in front of her, Gouget looked at her all the while. Under the bright light cast by the lampshade, he could see her well. How aged and altered she seemed. The heat was melting the snow on her hair and clothes, and she was dripping. Her poor wagging head was quite grey. There were any number of grey locks which the wind had disarranged. Her neck sank into her shoulders, and she had become so fat and ugly you might have cried on noticing the change. He recollected their love when she was quite rosy, working with her irons, and showing the childlike crease which set such a charming necklace round her throat. In those times he had watched her for hours, glad just to look at her. Later on she had come to the forge, and there they had enjoyed themselves whilst he beat the iron, and she stood by watching his hammer dance. How often at night, with his head buried in his pillow, had he dreamed of holding her in his arms. Gervaise rose, she had finished. She remained for a moment with her head lowered and ill at ease. Then, thinking she detected a gleam in his eyes, she raised her hand to her jacket and began to unfasten the first button. But Gouget had fallen on his knees, and taking hold of her hands, he exclaimed softly, "'I love you, Madame Gervaise. Oh, I love you still, and in spite of everything, I swear it to you.' "'Don't say that, Monsieur Gouget,' she cried, maddened to see him like this at her feet. "'No, don't say that. You grieve me too much.' And as he repeated that he could never love twice in his life, she became yet more despairing. No, no, I am too ashamed. For the love of God, get up. It is my place to be on the ground. He rose, he trembled all over, and stammered, Will you allow me to kiss you? Overcome with surprise and emotion, she could not speak, but she assented with a nod of the head. After all, she was his. He could do what he chose with her. "'but he merely kissed her. "'That suffices between us, Madame Gervaise,' he muttered. "'It sums up all our friendship, does it not?' 
He had kissed her on the forehead, on a lock of her grey hair. He had not kissed anyone since his mother's death. His sweetheart Gervaise alone remained to him in life. And then, when he had kissed her with so much respect, he fell back across his bed with his sobs rising in his throat. And Gervaise could not remain there any longer. It was too sad and too abominable to meet again under such circumstances when one loved. "'I love you, Monsieur Gouget,' she exclaimed. "'I love you dearly, also. "'Oh, it isn't possible you still love me. "'Good-bye, good-bye. "'It would smother us both. "'It would be more than we could stand.' "'And she darted through Madame Gouget's room "'and found herself outside on the pavement again. "'When she recovered her senses, "'she had rung at the door in the Rue de la Goutte d'Or, "'and Boche was pulling the string. "'The house was quite dark.' and in the black night the yawning, dilapidated porch looked like an open mouth. To think that she had been ambitious of having a corner in this barracks. Had her ears been stopped up, then, that she had not heard the cursed music of despair which sounded behind the walls? Since she had set foot in the place, she had begun to go downhill. Yes, it must bring bad luck to shut oneself up in these big workmen's houses. The cholera of misery was contagious there. That night everyone seemed to have kicked the bucket. She only heard the Boches snoring on the right-hand side, while Lantier and Virginie on the left were purring like a couple of cats who were not asleep, but have their eyes closed and feel warm. In the courtyard she fancied she was in a perfect cemetery. The snow paved the ground with white. The high frontages, livid grey in tint, rose up unlighted like ruined walls, and not a sigh could be heard. It seemed as if a whole village, stiffened with cold and hunger, were buried here. She had to step over a black gutter, water from the dye-works, which smoked and streaked the whiteness of the snow with its muddy course. It was the colour of her thoughts. The beautiful light blue and light pink waters had long since flowed away. Then, whilst ascending the six flights of stairs in the dark, she could not prevent herself from laughing, an ugly laugh which hurt her. She recalled her ideal of former days, to work quietly, always have bread to eat and a tidy house to sleep in, to bring up her children, not to be beaten, and to die in her bed. No, really, it was comical how all that was becoming realised. She no longer worked, she no longer ate, she slept on filth, her husband frequented all sorts of wine-shops, and her husband drubbed her at all hours of the day. All that was left for her to do was to die on the pavement, and it would not take long if on getting into her room she could only pluck up courage to fling herself out of the window. Was it not enough to make one think that she had hoped to earn thirty thousand francs a year, and no end of respect? Ah, really, in this life it is no use being modest. One only gets sat upon. Not even pap and a nest, that is the common lot. What increased her ugly laugh was the recollection of her grand hope of retiring into the country after twenty years passed in ironing. Well, she was on her way to the country. She was going to have her green corner in the Père Lachaise cemetery. 
When she entered the passage, she was like a madwoman. Her poor head was whirling round. At heart, her great grief was at having bid the blacksmith an eternal farewell. All was ended between them. They would never see each other more. Then besides that, all her other thoughts of misfortune pressed upon her, and almost caused her head to split. As she passed, she poked her nose in at the bijard, and beheld Lalie dead, with a look of contentment on her face, at having at last been laid out and slumbering forever. Ah, well, children were luckier than grown-up people. And as a glimmer of light passed under old Bazouge's door, she walked boldly in, seized with a mania for going off on the same journey as the little one. That old joker Bazouge had come home that night in an extraordinary state of gaiety. He had had such a booze that he was snoring on the ground in spite of the temperature, and that no doubt did not prevent him from dreaming something pleasant, for he seemed to be laughing from his stomach as he slept. The candle which he had not put out lighted up his old garments, his black cloak which he had drawn over his knees as though it had been a blanket. On beholding him, Gervaise uttered such a deep wailing that he awoke. Mon Dieu, shut the door. It's so cold. Ah, it's you. What's the matter? What do you want? Then Gervaise, stretching out her arms, no longer knowing what she stuttered, began passionately to implore him. Oh, take me away. I've had enough. I want to go off. You mustn't bear me any grudge. I didn't know. One never knows until one's ready. Oh, yes, one's glad to go one day. Take me away. Take me away, and I shall thank you. She fell on her knees, all shaken with a desire which caused her to turn ghastly pale. Never before had she thus dragged herself at a man's feet. Old Bazouge's ugly mug, with his mouth all on one side, and his hide begrimed with the dust of funerals, seemed to her as beautiful and resplendent as a sun. The old fellow, who was scarcely awake, thought, however, that it was some sort of bad joke. "'Look here,' murmured he, "'no jokes!' "'Take me away,' repeated Gervaise more ardently still. "'You remember I knocked one evening against the partition. "'Then I said it wasn't true, because I was still a fool. "'But see, give me your hands. I'm no longer frightened. "'Take me away to bye-bye. "'You'll see how still I'll be. "'Oh, sleep, that's all I care for.' Oh, I love you so much. Bazouge, ever gallant, thought that he ought not to be hasty with a lady who appeared to have taken such a fancy to him. She was falling to pieces, but all the same what remained was very fine, especially when she was excited. What you say is very true, said he in a convinced manner. I packed up three more today who would only have been too glad to have given me something for myself, could they but have got their hands to their pockets. But, little woman, it's not so easily settled as all that. Take me away, take me away, continued Gervaise. I want to die. Ah, but there's a little operation to be gone through beforehand. You know. <coughs> and he made a noise in his throat, as though swallowing his tongue. Then, thinking it a good joke, he chuckled. Gervaise slowly rose to her feet, 
so he too could do nothing for her. She went to her room and threw herself on her straw, feeling stupid and regretting she had eaten. Ah, no, indeed, misery did not kill quickly enough. End of chapter 12 Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey